Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're playing a genuinely vast tome. The 800-paragraph Destiny Quest book The Legion of Shadow by Michael J. Ward. I'm very excited to be covering this one. We've actually had a copy in the house for about a decade because my partner got one at a convention. Somehow it always seemed to fall through the cracks when I was looking for a game book to play, possibly because it is intimidatingly huge. But I'm very pleased to be able to put that oversight right with this podcast. Before we get into The Legion of Shadow, there is some business to attend to. The first is to thank a new patron who has put his hand in his pocket to support my nonsense over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thank you very much, Al. Your support means a lot to me. I should also say a big hello to Felix and Annie, who I gather often listen to this podcast with their dad. You can't see it, but I'm giving you a big friendly wave. The other thing I need to say is that my new role-playing game, Crown of Crimson, is finally out for all my lovely patrons. I've emailed a copy to everyone using the email that they signed up for on Patreon, but there's also a post on Patreon with the PDF attached, if that's easier. I'm very pleased with how it turned out, but it was an absolute swine to get over the line for some reason. Sometimes game design is just hard, but I got there in the end, and that is nice. It's got some ideas in there which I really love, and even if you don't want to use my system, I think there's a good one-shot adventure baked into it. With those notices out of the way, let's take a look at Destiny Quest Book 1. I'm going to try and keep the system talk fairly brief, because it's always kind of the least interesting part of the prelude. Happily, this one isn't too complicated, and on first look seems to do a decent job of creating something a bit more involved than fighting fantasy without getting too complicated. You have three main stats, all of which start off as zero. They are brawn, speed, and magic. You've also got an armor score that reduces damage, and a health score that's your stamina, and you start off with 30 health. Fighting involves both fighters rolling 2d6 and adding their speed, re-rolling any draws. The one that rolls highest has scored a hit, so much like fighting fantasy. Whoever hits then rolls 1d6 and adds their brawn or magic, whichever is higher. You subtract the armour of the person they've hit and then reduce their health by whatever remains. So if you've got a brawn of 2, do you roll a 6? You're dealing 4 damage to someone with an armour of 4. Repeat this process until someone is dead. The book will also test your attributes at various points, and that's just rolling 2d6, adding your attribute, and comparing the result to a difficulty number. Nice and simple. I like that your stats start at zero. It suggests that some thought has gone into balancing, which, as we all know by now, is a real issue with fighting fantasy books. And I'm pleased that we're using six-sided dice. That keeps things nice and accessible. There's also a whole load of special skills available which could be used at various points but we'll deal with those along with any magic spells as and when we get to them. You've also got slots for various items kind of like in a computer RPG. So you've got slots for head, chest, legs, two hands, a cloak, boots, space for two rings, a talisman and a necklace. I'm guessing that finding armour and weapons is going to be a big way that you boost your starting stats up from zero. 
you've got a backpack but it has only five spaces so we have to be a little bit thoughtful about what we take with us. One cool thing is that this book came with some promotional bookmarks, each of which is also a secret item that you can get when you defeat certain enemies in the game. That's a cool idea and a fun little extra for those that got in on the ground floor. Hopefully they're not too powerful because gating content behind promotional bookmarks feels like it's asking for trouble, but so long as they're balanced it's a fun twist. Okay, that's enough preamble to be going on with. I've created a character in the sense that I've given my character a name, which is Tepid Gulchweaver, which I think sounds nicely heroic. Without any further ado, let's dive into the Legion of Shadow. Prologue. The Knight's Legacy. You are thrown from the dream, kicking and flailing. It is some seconds before you can catch your breath. Images of black-scaled monsters and sharp fangs still swimming before your vision. As your surroundings slowly come into focus, you find yourself lying on your back against the soggy ground, a steady patter of rain beating on the dead leaves and dirt. Above you, a full moon streams garish light through the treetops, picking out the charred, twisted remains that encircle you. Bodies. Corpses. Frantically, you scramble to your feet, the cold rain making the ground slippery with mud. As you stand, an angry pain causes you to stagger, thumping against the inside of your head. Putting a hand to the back of your scalp, you feel for a wound or bruise. To your surprise, you find nothing. All around you, the ground is scorched and smoking, forming a crater with you at its centre. Sprawled around its edge are over a dozen bodies, each one burnt beyond all recognition. You close your eyes, struggling to remember what happened. How you came to be here. Do like a story that begins in media res. I'm already intrigued. Uh, I think it's a great technique. I do find that more congenial than the usual long rambling explanation of precisely which king with a silly name is being oppressed by which wizard with a silly name in which land with a silly name so yeah no it's scoring points with me early doors you look down at your tattered clothing rain soaked and smeared with blood a splatter of blood covers one sleeve tentatively you pull back the cloth your eyes widening in surprise when you see the purple mark branded into the skin the design is detailed and intricate, showing three diamond-bodied serpents intertwined with dizzying patterns of spirals. Around them, a number of strange sigils glow with a soft, purplish light. You hear a groan coming from the trees ahead. Covering the strange mark, you stagger through the mud towards the sound. Instinctively, your hand goes to your belt looking for a weapon, but there is none there. You are unarmed. Scanning the mud, you find a rusty-looking dagger next to one of the scorched bodies. You crouch down and pick it up before heading into the dark trees. A man is lying with his back against one of the trunks. No, a boy, not much older than fifteen. He is clad in plate armour, his thick mud-spattered cloak bunched around his shoulders. The shaft of an arrow protrudes from his lower chest, having pierced through the links between the metal plates. The boy looks up as you approach, his face deathly white and dripping with rainwater. A trickle of blood seeps from the corner of his mouth. What 
What happened, you ask, kneeling beside the wounded knight. The boy fixes his watery eyes on your own. You don't remember? He rasps hoarsely. You say nothing, your attention shifting to the black-fletched arrow. Who did this? Who are these people? You gesture back towards the clearing where the scorched bodies lie in twisted repose. Brigands! Thieves! gasps the boy, grimacing with pain. They attacked our camp! Our camp? you ask. You close your eyes, struggling to remember what happened. To find that part of yourself, that corner of your mind where some memory or trace of who you are might still remain. There is nothing. Only a chill darkness as cold and impenetrable as the night. When you open your eyes, they are misted with angry tears. I don't remember. I don't remember anything. So we've got an amnesiac protagonist, which I guess is also a pretty hoary old trope. But I don't think we've seen it for a while. So I'm more than happy to let it pass. The boy gives a pained gasp as he struggles to raise one of his hands. With a trembling finger, he points to your head. You took a blow right before you killed those men. You draw back, inhaling sharply. I, I did that back there. Images of the charred, ruined bodies flash before your eyes. How? Some magic, whispers the boy. It came from... The mark on your arm. You flinch, clutching your arm protectively against your chest. The boy smirks at your reaction. You never mentioned it. I guess it was something you didn't want me to know about. And this, you ask, looking down at the black-fletched arrow. Assassin spitted me, he grimaces. He was the only one to get away. Their leader, I think. Where the shaft meets the skin, you can see green poison bubbling out of the wound. The boy reads your fatal expression. I know. It's too late for me. Your shoulders sag. It is a grim thought that this dying night is the last remaining link to your past, to your previous life that is now forgotten. We know each other, you ask hesitantly. We met yesterday, rasps the boy. We were both travelling the same road to Tithebury Cross. You shake your head. The name means nothing to you. I'm an academy knight, the boy wheezes. Just graduated top of my class. I was going to apprentice. He stops as a wave of pain forces him to shudder. You put out your hand, gripping his shoulder and willing him to go on. I was going to apprentice with Avian Dale, the great Avian Dale. For a moment there is a flicker of life in his eyes, his pain forgotten as he stares wistfully up to the dark sky. This was my instructor's idea. He said I was the best in my year. Avian doesn't accept just anyone. I was special. His face sours as he looks down at the arrow shaft. Now that life is over. Suddenly, from somewhere back in the forest, you hear a piercing shriek. You glance nervously over your shoulder. 
Harpies, grimaces the boy. They hunt in packs, the scent. He lifts his hands, revealing palms soaked with his own blood. It will draw them here. You must go. But I can't just leave you. I must find out. My pack. Fetch my pack. The boy tilts his head. Following his gaze, you see a brown backpack lying at the base of one of the trees. You quickly retrieve it, surprised at its lightness as you lift it out of the mud. The boy gestures for you to open it. Inside, wedged between a bundle of clothes, is a rolled-up sheet of parchment. Take it, whispers the boy. It's my letter from the academy. I feel as though maybe I shouldn't have been doing the absolutely on-his-last-legs voice from line one for this night, because for all that he's very badly injured, he's pretty chatty. Unrolling the scroll, you see that it is covered in a neat flowing script. It is addressed to an avian dale, outlining the merits of a young academy knight. It ends in a green seal of wax displaying the insignia of a wind dragon. I can't take this, you protest, shaking your head. The boy gives a wheezing cough, his body jerking painfully with the effort. It's no good to me. Take it. Start a new life. You'll never know. A screech draws your attention skywards. Black shapes are circling overhead, their spindly feathered bodies silhouetted against the full moon. Harpies. Something inside of you is urging you to flee. The mark along your arm tingles, as if sensing the same danger. I mean, presumably the thing urging me to flee is the fact that there's harpies that I can literally see. That's not a mysterious, mystical prompting. That's going, oh no, harpies! You roll up the scroll and stuff it into the pack. When you look over at the boy, you see that his head is now resting against his chest, his eyes closed. Death has finally taken him. I will find the assassin that did this, I promise. You reach down and take the boy's sword. It is a well-balanced blade, the hilt and pommel studded with gems. You have gained the following item. The Apprentice. A main hand sword which grants plus one brawn. So my brawn now increased to the mighty total of one. Another bird-like screech tears through the night. There are answering calls from all around you worryingly close. Quickly you shoulder the knight's pack and then start running. You find a comfort in purpose, keeping to a fast pace as you weave between the withered trees of the dark forest. After what feels like an age of battling through the cloying mud and driving rain, you spy a cave in the hollow of a hill. Having found shelter, you sit and await the dawn, shivering with more than just cold. So that's the introduction. I think it does a really good job, quite honestly, of introducing the world of knights and monsters and also giving you two potential avenues to explore. One, going and becoming the apprentice of this knight. The other, seeking revenge for the young lad who was murdered. And I like those because they're both internal motivations rather than external motivations. One of the reasons that I respond so well to game books like Death Trap Dungeon and The One Where You're a Thief 
is that they provide the character with their own motivations for going on the quest rather than being told to do so by some external authority figure and I just find it easier to connect with those internal motivations so this is doing a, a cracking job at the opening I mean, arguably it's a little bit long as an opening but it's well written I didn't find it dull so yeah it's a good start for me the wooden signpost points southwards where the marshy forest gives way to green rolling hills Tithebury Cross, three miles. You take a deep breath of the warm morning air. A new life, a new start. Peeling back your sleeve, you look down at the purple mark glowing beneath the skin. Does this strange mark hold the key to your past? And what of the future? You scan the letter of introduction once again. A letter recommending a talented knight to apprentice with one of the grand masters of the profession, Avian Dale. Avian Dale really is the kind of name I would give a character, so I appreciate that. It should have been the young boy. This was his future, his dream. But he said, it is no good to me. Take it. Start a new life. No one will ever know. Carefully, you roll up the letter and return it to your pack before setting off down the long, dusty road towards Tithebury. So, turn to the first map to begin Act 1 of your adventure. Choose where you want to explore by turning to the entry number displayed next to the shield. Start with the green quests. They're the easiest. Return to the map when you want to choose a new quest or destination. So, uh, we've got the map of Act 1, Tithebury. Uh, it's a lovely full-colour map with 13 possible locations, of which three appear to be uh, sort of boss monsters that you can take on. Uh, there are three green quests we can undertake. A um, couple of blues, some sort of orange, and then a couple of red. So the three green quests, one of them's in the forest and two of them are in small settlements. So I'm going to go for the one in the forest first, because uh, that seems kind of intriguing to me. So, uh, quest Scarlet in the Woods. In Tithebury, idle gossip travels fast. It isn't long before reports of a missing child reach your ears. Sensing an opportunity for some paid work, you head to the edge of the Tithebury Woods where a small wood cabin rests on a grassy knoll. A grizzled old man sits outside the building, sharpening the blade of his longsword with a notched stone. He looks up as you approach and offers a mumbled greeting. You notice that the man's right leg is heavily bandaged. A pair of crutches rests beside his stool. You explain that you have heard news of a missing child. The man shakes his head and looks away for a moment, his jaw clenching and unclenching. Yeah, my daughter... He says at last, shaking his head. A spirited thing. Not seen hide nor hair of her for three days. Gave her some of my best brandy to take to her poorly grandma. Lives right across the other side of the valley. The man lowers his gaze to his injured leg. I fear the worst, stranger. Goblins have moved into those woods. I tried my best to find her. I did. He reaches out, gripping your arm tightly. 
please. I have no gold or treasure to offer, but I still have a father's love for his daughter. Please, will you find her and bring her home safe? So, um, little bit Red Riding Hood, it's fair to say. I don't mind that, borrowing from the classics. Can agree to help, ask about the woods, or politely refuse, so we will ask about the woods. After all, knowing is half the battle. The woods always been safe if you stick to the path. Lizelle always knew that, can handle herself, that girl. I tell you, always visiting a kind old grandma. The man runs a finger along the edge of his sharpened blade. It's been three days now and not a word. She should have been back. Lizelle knows I would have been worrying. She's all I got now, you see. The man's steely eyes settle on your own. Oh, wager she's still with her grandma. That, that old woman's a glutton for fanciful stories. Fills my dear Lizelle's head full of them, I dare say. She may have tarried there. But goblins, he sniffs the air like a wizened old wolf. Their taint is on the breeze. If goblins have taken her, I fear the worst. He looks down at the crutches resting next to his stool. If I wasn't so crippled, I'd be out there now, scouring every inch of that blasted wood. So we can agree to help or we can ask him about his injury. Well, ask him about his injury. God, jump by goblins. Three of the vermin and fierce fighters too. I was lucky to escape with my life. The woodsman raises his sword, the polished blade reflecting the afternoon sun. I've seen a fair bit of action in my time. I know how to handle myself. But these goblins, they're something else. Never seen their like in these parts before. It's a bad sign. A very bad sign. Okay, well, um, it does seem likely that it is goblins. And, uh, well, what better way to start an adventure than by murdering a few goblins? So I will definitely agree to help. The man offers you a grim smile. Thank you, he says. And remember, be on your guard. Those goblins are cowardly creatures, but they're smart. Smarter than they look. He pats his bandaged leg as if to drive home the point. Never underestimate them. The woodsman leans forward and points to a small break in the nearby trees. You can find a path there that will take you straight through to the other side of the valley if you want, and uh, keep to the path and only stray if you have to. No telling what you might find in those woods. After thanking the woodsman, you shoulder your backpack and head out into the Tithebury woods. After listening to the woodsman's gloomy warnings, you are initially surprised by the pleasant and inviting woodland. The path is easy to follow, leading you past gentle tree-lined hills and picturesque meadows of wildflowers. The sun casts dappled patterns over the leafy clearings ringing with birdsong. You can't imagine these woods hiding any deadly monsters. Half an hour later, and you find yourself grudgingly eating your words. Almost without warning, the trees have closed in on all sides, swallowing the sunlight and replacing the gentle sounds of birdsong with the eerie rustle of leaves and creaking boughs. The path has narrowed, becoming little more than a game trail littered with rocks and wandering tree roots. Picking your way carefully along the dark trail, you keep an anxious eye on the tangled knot of trees to either side. This is prime territory for an ambush. The trail leads you along the crest of a hill, then plunges down into a wooded valley. The sound of a chuckling stream can be heard from somewhere off to your right, 
where the ground rises steeply into rocky hills. You are considering whether to leave the trail and refill your water skin when a scream from up ahead shatters the silence. It sounded like a young girl. Drawing your weapon, you break into a sprint, racing along the narrow, winding trail. After a few minutes, you skid to a halt, ears pricked for any further clues as to the girl's whereabouts. Then you hear another scream coming from the trees to your left. You leave the trail and plunge into the undergrowth. So it's quite nicely written, but other than asking the woodsman some probing questions, I don't seem to have a lot of choice in this particular phase of the adventure. It's not a huge problem, particularly for one of the very earliest quests, but um, it's something I might be keeping an eye on. Bursting out of the woods, you find yourself in a clearing dominated by a gnarled tree. A young girl is dangling upside down from one of its branches, her feet tangled in a rope. She is dressed in boyish breeches and a tunic, and a thick red shawl hangs loosely from her shoulders. Below her, two spindly goblins are hunched over the girl's basket, rummaging through the contents. As you approach, one of them looks up, its black, glassy eyes glinting in the dappled sunlight. The creature gives two hooting cries, then scurries towards you, pulling a rusty sword from its belt. The other goblin slides a knife from its boot and hurries to join the battle. You must fight the goblins as a single enemy. So, the goblin poachers have a speed of zero, so it's a straight 50-50, who hits who. Brawn of one, same as me, and no armour, same as me. They have 20 health, but... Once they've been reduced to 10 health or less, I've got to just turn to another section. So, this shouldn't be too much of a problem. I'd be fairly unlucky to uh, be taken out by the goblin poachers, but never say never. For the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have reduced the goblins to 10 health. Uh, they reduced me to 27 health myself. Good start. Despite being short and ungainly, the goblins prove to be accomplished fighters. It takes all of your skill just to fend off their frenzied attacks. At last, just as you are starting to tire, a sudden opening presents itself, allowing you to deliver a fatal blow. With a gurgling cry, one of the goblins topples to the ground, dead. On seeing its companion fall, the other goblin gives a cowardly whimper, then turns and starts running for the nearby trees. You start to follow when a voice brings you up short. Hey, hey, excuse me. The young girl is glaring at you angrily from her upside-down vantage point. Well, don't just stand there gawping like the village idiot, she snaps. Cut me down from this tree this instant. So we can either pursue the fleeing goblin or cut the girl down from the tree. I think we'll cut her down. Uh, no, no sense in looking for fights if we don't absolutely have to. You cut the girl loose, taking a small degree of satisfaction as she drops to the ground with a thud. Ouch, she cries. You could have done that a little more graciously. She gets to her feet, brushing the leaves and twigs from her clothes. All day I've been up that blooming tree and not a single sign of him. Not a single sign. She wanders over and picks up her basket. I was sure that a handsome huntsman would come and save me. I screamed and screamed until I was hoarse. Oh, that would have been so perfect for him to find me here, a maiden in distress. She gives a long, wistful sigh. 
So you can either ask her about the huntsman, the goblins, or demand that she goes home. She doesn't strike me as a woman to respond well to demands. So I will, uh, yeah, I'll avoid the heavy-handed route. I'll ask her about the huntsman, though, because I am kind of intrigued. Why, he's the only reason I'm here in these horrible woods, says the girl, flicking a stray leaf from her shawl. He lives up in the hills to the east of here. Traveller and handsome, so very handsome. My, when I picture those big arms of his, all the better to hug me with. Her eyes glaze over and she starts to sway from side to side, beaming like a lovesick child. It isn't until you cough loudly that she comes out of her romantic reverie. Yes, well, I'm in love, isn't that obvious? Poor Daddy. He thinks I'm always visiting Granny, but gosh, who would want to travel these woods just to see that wrinkly old goat? No, it's the huntsman I always come to see. He has such fascinating stories to tell. One day we'll leave Tithebury together and travel the world. Just think of that. She looks at you intently as if challenging you to say otherwise. So we can demand that she goes home immediately or ask about the goblins. We will ask about the goblins. Don't really want to get into a fight with this young lady. Those vile things, says the girl, wrinkling her nose. I fell foul of one of their silly traps while I was picking mushrooms. I could have been a goner, I suppose, but in my heart of hearts I always knew that my handsome huntsman would find me eventually. She pauses, looking you up and down like a dirty piece of laundry. Shame you came along and spoiled everything. You don't look like a hero. Not like the ones in the storybooks. Not like my gorgeous huntsman. So, at this point, we can only really demand that she goes home immediately. Home? I'm not going home, snaps the girl, stamping her feet. I can't go home. When you demand to know why, she lifts up her basket, revealing a freshly picked mushroom inside. I'm making a potion, she says. A, a love potion. The witch gave me the recipe. All I need now is some findlewort, then I'll have everything I need. She stomps off across the clearing, heading towards a tangled line of trees. You hurry after her, explaining that there isn't time for making potions. The sunlight is fading fast, it will be dark soon and the goblins could be back. Not to mention her worried father waiting for her at home. But the girl does not appear remotely bothered by your concerns. I'm not going home, she declares. With this potion I'll get exactly what I want. The huntsman will fall in love with me and we'll be together forever. Now, she stops abruptly, pointing a finger under your nose. Are you going to make yourself useful and help me find some Findlewort, or what? So we can agree to help the girl or tell her she's acting like a selfish brat. Well, she might be acting like a selfish brat, but I can remember being young and in love. Just. Uh, and it does tend to make you a bit of an idiot, if my memory serves me correctly. So I don't want to come down on her for being young and in love. Behaving stupidly just goes with the territory, so I guess I'll just agree to help her find some Findlewort. Hmm, that's more like it, she nods. Now follow me. I assume you're capable of that, at least. With a swish of her red shawl, the girl turns and heads back into the woods. You bite down on your tongue and follow, reminding yourself that you are here to protect her and return her safely home, no matter how rude and temperamental she is. You have only gone a little way into the trees when the ground starts to slope downwards, becoming moist and spongy underfoot. Soon you are squelching through thick mud, the air buzzing with black flies. Just up here, 
says the girl, pushing her way through the low-hanging branches. Thindlewort grows in bogs, and this looks about perfect. She stops and points through the tangled undergrowth. Ahead, you see a sludgy-looking mire, and at the centre, a small island covered in root-like plants. There they are. Now, go get me some. I just need a little for my potion. Eager to get it over with, you push past her and wade into the thick mire, the dirty sludge reaching up to your waist. The girl watches you from the mire's edge, chewing nervously on a fingernail. Hurry up, she shouts, and be careful. You reach the island and pull yourself up onto the bank. After taking a moment to catch your breath, you snatch up some of the findlewort and stuff it into your backpack. Just as you're about to slide back into the mire, you notice a series of ripples spreading across the surface of the water. As you watch, the ripples start to move, forming an arrow-like pattern that is headed straight towards the island. Suddenly, there is a blinding spray of mud and pondweed as something huge lunges out of the swamp. For a second, all you can see is giant teeth and black scales. Then you are frantically fighting for your life against a giant crocodile. The giant crocodile has a speed of zero, brawn of one, and an armour of one. It has twelve health. I like this as an encounter purely because this has been very light and um, whimsical little introductory adventure and suddenly throwing a giant crocodile into the mix is uh, an interesting way of reminding us that we're not necessarily in Kansas and that the world might be stranger and more dangerous than we know. So yeah, I like that very much. But for the adventure proceeds, I've got a beat this giant croc so i'm gonna roll some dice i have defeated the crocodile it reduced me to 23 health by some small miracle you are able to defeat the frenzied crocodile you may take any or all of the following rewards so there is a croc's tooth a left hand dagger oh we'll have that and there is a crocodile skin which it says perhaps someone can put this to good use. The croc's tooth gives us plus one brawn, taking our brawn to two. Take both of those items because I've got five spaces in my backpack, so now four remaining. As you wipe the mud and pondweed from your clothes, you become aware of the girlish giggles coming from the far shore. The woodsman's daughter is hopping up and down, waving her arms above her head. Oh, that was so exciting! She gasps. You were almost as brave as my handsome huntsman. You wade back across the mire, muttering several obscenities under your breath. Come on, give it to me, quick, demands the girl, holding out her hand. It's all I need for my potion. Angrily, you fling open your pack and hand her the findlewort. Perfect, she smiles. You're a hero after all. Suddenly, something hits you in the chest, sending you flying backwards into the swamp. Coughing and spluttering, you surface to find yourself face to face with a goblin. The same one that ran away from you earlier. He holds a knife to your throat. Over the creature's shoulder, you can see the woodman's daughter sprinting into the forest, chased by another goblin. Before you can hope to rescue her, you must defeat your foe. The goblin poacher has a speed of naught and a brawn of one, uh, armour of naught and ten health. So, yeah, more fighting. Me gonna roll dice 
I made short work of the Goblin Patriot. I took no further damage. My health remains on 23. You slay the Goblin, its lifeless body sinking down into the mire. Exhausted, you pull yourself up onto the bank, your clothes sagging heavily from the mud and water. After taking a moment to recover, you clamber to your feet and begin your pursuit of the remaining Goblin, following its trail through the undergrowth. I'm enjoying how this started as sort of a relatively simple task and it's just got more and more complicated as I've made terrible decisions. You haven't gone far before you find the corpse of a goblin, a kitchen knife protruding from its chest. Perhaps the woodman's daughter knows how to defend herself after all. You search the body and find five gold crowns. Oh, I should have said earlier that you start off with ten gold crowns, so I now have fifteen you may take any and all of the following items. Uh, there are goblin leathers, which are a chest item for plus one armour. Take my armour up to one, that's handy. And some goblin grog, which I can use any time in combat to restore four health. So that's handy. There's a really good sense of becoming more powerful as you go through this adventure. Um... I suspect I'm going to be rolling a lot of dice over the course of this adventure. It seems as though combat is a big thing. But the fact that you get to kind of level up in a subtle way after pretty much every combat, that feels pretty cool. You push your way through the tight undergrowth to find yourself back on the main trail. There is no sign of the woodsman's daughter. Do you want to follow the trail to Grandma's house or head east into the hills? I think we'll head east into the hills because... That's where I remember the Huntsman lives. As you head east, the land rises sharply, becoming a series of rocky hills covered in gnarly vegetation. You quicken your pace, aware that the sun is already beginning to set, casting an auburn brilliance over your stark surroundings. You haven't ventured far into the hills before you spot a thin column of smoke rising into the darkening skies. Could this be the Huntsman's camp that the young girl mentioned? You hurry towards it, the succulent aroma of freshly cooking meat providing you all the encouragement you need. You finally reach the campsite, set in the sheltered hollow of a bleak stony hill. A skinned rabbit slowly roasts over a roaring fire, the dripping fat causing the flames to spit and sizzle. Behind it you can see a covered wagon and a straggly line of trees where a piebald pony is tethered. The beast looks agitated, tugging against its restraints. There doesn't appear to be anyone around. Then you notice a straw basket lying on its side in the grass. Next to it is a broken bottle from which a black bubbling liquid steams. <gasps> Intriguing! Alert for danger, you step warily around the campfire and are amazed and horrified by what you see. A giant grey wolf watches you from the edge of the light, its amber eyes reflecting the dancing flames. You notice an oily black liquid dripping from its fangs, the same liquid you saw in the bottle. With a bestial snarl, the wolf launches itself at you. You have no choice but to fight this ferocious creature. The big bad wolf, for it is he, has a speed of naught, a brawn of one, and an armour of one, and health fifteen. So, uh, is the huntsman a werewolf? I think he might just be. Regardless, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the big bad wolf. He did loads of damage to me. But, like any sensible person, 
engaged in a life or death struggle with uh, a wolf, I drank two bottles of goblin beer and that sorted me out a bit. Anyway, my health is now 16 after yeah significant reduction, but significant improvement caused by drinking on the job. The wolf lies dead at your feet. As you watch, the creature's body begins to shift and change, the bones cracking and reforming into a human shape. Within moments, the body of a man lies before you, the black liquid still coating his lips. It is then that you hear a quiet sobbing coming from behind the wagon. You hurry to investigate and find the woodsman's daughter huddled next to one of the wheels, trembling with fear. It was all my fault, she gasps. I let him drink the potion. I said it was a gift from my father. And then he changed. He changed. She looks away, shivering. I did everything that the recipe said, everything, and it turned him into that. She points to the huntsman's corpse. I should have known not to trust the witch. Oh, what have I done? You help the girl to her feet. As it is now late evening, you decide it is best that the two of you sleep in the wagon and head back to her father at first light. The next morning, the girl is quiet and sullen. You eat a heartless breakfast together and then travel back to the woods, following the trail back to her father's house. The girl walks in silence, huddled in her tattered red shawl. Back at the cabin, the woodsman is overjoyed to see his daughter again. He asks what happened and you take him aside to explain the sequence of events. My daughter should have known better than to trust that witch. Been nothing but trouble since that old crone came to these lands. Thanking you once again, the woodsman offers you his prized sword as a reward for returning his daughter safely. So the Goblin Hewer is a sword, main hand sword, which grants plus one speed and plus one armour. So I will take that because speed means hitting more often. So I have to get rid of my apprentice sword replace it with a goblin hewer, so I lose a point of brawn, taking my brawn down to one, but gaining a point of speed for a speed of one, and a point of armour for an armour of two. That is very cool. You may now return to the map to continue your journey. Okay, we have returned to uh, the Act 1 map. Uh, the sensible thing would be to go and do another of the green quests, but in all honesty, there's no way I'm going to have any hope of completing uh, this game book on the recorded playthrough to think otherwise is just a nonsense so I think we will go to one of the more difficult quests so that you can hear what that involves and hopefully we'll get at least some of the way through it so there's what looks to be a church or temple of some kind which is a blue quest so maybe maybe we can have a crack at a blue quest um uh, and that seems like a, a likely one to go for so that's what we're going to do quest the black book night has fallen the full moon shines brilliantly against a cloudless backdrop of stars as you hurry along the rutted lane towards the welcoming lights of tithebury cross you find yourself pausing outside the graveyard. A wooden sign has been tied to the old rusted gate. It reads simply, Danger. Keep out. Peering through the spike-topped railings, you see a dark hill tangled and overgrown with weeds. It leads up to a steepled church standing silent and forgotten on the hill. 
Suddenly, you catch something out of the corner of your eye. Turning, you see a hooded man standing by the side of the lane. You feel his eyes upon you even though they are hidden deep within the shadows of his cowl. The hairs on the back of your neck begin to prickle. You never heard the man approach. Glancing around, you cannot see any trees or undergrowth where he might have been hiding. The man walks slowly towards you, his boots making only the faintest whisper of noise. Good evening, stranger, he says in a thin, velvety voice. Your reputation precedes you in these parts. A brave adventurer, to be sure. I was wondering if I could make use of your services. If you have already completed the quest, the witch hunt, you get one option. Otherwise, we go to a different option. So that's cool. Sounds as though we might be able to tangle with the evil witch that um, tricked Little Red Riding Hood back there. That's kind of cool. I'll be definitely looking out for that on a subsequent playthrough. My name is Fetch, says the man, bowing his head to you in greeting. My master, a man of some influence in the affairs of Tithebury, is seeking an item of significant worth. He raises a pale hand and gestures towards the dark church on the hill. Do you know the legend of this place? The reason the locals will no longer set foot on the hill? You clear your throat, intending to answer, but the man carries on regardless. It's the Black Book, the grimoire of Naragost. The man's voice trembles slightly at the mention of the name. The hooded man recounts a legend. Goody, goody, goody. Two hundred years ago a crusader came to Tithebury Cross. He had a disease, terrible affliction. Some records say it was the plague. In his fever he spoke of a book he was protecting. The village priest did what he could, but the crusader could not be saved. He passed away, and not before he implored the priest to obey his final dying wish, to bury him in the old catacomb beneath the church, with all of his belongings. And so the wish was granted. Fetch walks over to the rusted gate, placing his pale hands against the iron bars. It was many years before the bad things started to happen. The noises, the whispering, the dead walking... The land itself had become corrupted. He turns to look at you, eyes glittering from beneath the hood. The locals keep this place under lock and key. They fear what lurks in the catacombs beneath the church. The priest put a spell of warding on its door, not to keep the villagers away, but to keep what was inside from getting out. That is where I need you to go. That is where you will find the book. So we can ask him why he can't get the book himself, or ask about a reward. Well, let's ask about why he can't get the book himself. That seems important information to know. The man lifts a pale finger and waves it back and forth. Ah, no, no, no. That hill is still hallowed ground, my friend. And that makes it uh, difficult for people like me. He pauses for a heartbeat and then gives a dry, rattling laugh. I have done some bad deeds in this life, things I am not proud of. I have always had a fear of such holy places that the, the one God in his good grace will strike me down for my sins. A, a silly superstition of mine, nothing more. The man folds his arms, his fingers tapping impatiently on the sleeves of his robe. 
you can hear any noise in the background, that's my cat trying to scrabble his way through a window. He really is not the sharpest. The man folds his arms, his fingers tapping impatiently on the sleeve of his robe. Now I think I have answered your questions, so what's it to be? Okay, we will agree to the task. Good, good. The man reaches into his robes and pulls out a large iron key. He fits it into the heavy padlock and twists it with a loud click. Removing the lock, he pushes on the gate, which gives a grating squeal as it opens out onto the moonlit expanse of undergrowth and crumbling headstones. Good luck, my friend, and be on your guard. Oh, wait. He puts a hand in his pocket and produces an old rolled-up piece of parchment. Take this. It is a scroll of opening. You will need it to enter the catacombs. Scroll doesn't take up a, sh uh, a backpack space, so that's handy. You start up the hill towards the church, trudging through the scraggly grass and rank weeds. Behind you, a loud grating squeal is followed by the click of a lock. Fetch has closed the gate and locked you in. You are now all alone in the eerie graveyard. You stride briskly towards the double doors of the church, keen to be done with this unsettling task. However, your pace soon slows as you become aware of a patch of shadow by the wooden doors of the church. It appears to be moving. In horror, you watch as the shadow glides across the nettles and grass towards you, passing straight through the weed-choked headstones in its path. As it nears, the shadow begins to grow, spreading out like a giant net. And at its centre, an immense grinning mouth opens wide, lined with needle-sharp teeth. You must now fight. The shadow has a speed of five, a magic of four, and an armour of three, indicating that we should definitely have finished the green quests before embarking on the blue one. I imagine I'm going to die, but for the sake of formality, I'm going to roll some dice. The hideous shadow has hideously killed me. Um... I didn't really do any damage to it. I did, like, two points of damage. Uh, yeah. Definitely do the green quest first. But it's not quite time, I don't think, to call it a day. So I will invoke the sausagey finger bookmark rule to say that we actually defeated the shadow. And we will press on. With relief, you discover that your weapons and magic can harm the shadow. Dodging its snapping jaws and cold, piercing touch... You are finally able to overcome the nightmarish creature. As you deliver the killing blow, the shadow evaporates with an echoing hiss, leaving behind something small and round, which drops to the earth at your feet. You can take uh, the Essence of Shadow, which is an orb you use in your left hand, and it gives plus one speed, plus one magic, and the ability Chill Touch. Chill touch you can use once per combat to reduce your opponent's speed by two for a single round. That's pretty cool. So that will replace the Goblin Dagger, taking my Brawn back down to zero, but my magic up to one and my speed up to two. Very helpful. You pick your way past the last of the gravestones and approach the double doors of the church. Turning the black circular handles, you push open the heavy doors and enter. Moonlight streams through the arched glass windows, illuminating the wooden pews that line the nave. You move slowly down the aisle, your eyes flittering from one deep shadow to the next. 
You are almost at the pulpit when a gargling guttural cry forces you to turn. Bounding at the top of the pews is a ragged, bony creature with a hairy, wolf-like face. It springs towards you at unnatural speed, using its spindly arms and legs to propel itself forward. As the creature leaps down into the aisleway, its sharp claws throw up sparks as they rake against the stone. With no chance of evading this fast foe, you must fight. It is a ghoul. Speed of five, brawn of two, armour of two, and it's got piercing claws, which mean the ghoul's attacks. Ignore my armour of two. Uh, it's got 25 health. So I'm guessing I'm also going to die in this combat as well. But you never know. Maybe we'll be lucky. We've got the chill touch. We'll uh, see whether that makes any difference. I'm going to roll some dice. Yep. Yep, the ghoul has done for me. Um, very, very swiftly. Unbelievably swiftly. Uh, turns out this was a terrible, terrible idea. But I think we've got a flavour of the first Destiny Quest book from this uh, short adventure. I always prefer erring on the side of a shorter record on stuff that's still very much available where the author can very much get paid. So I'm not unhappy with the blue quest being quite fatal. It's obviously a very combat-heavy book. I think that's something I can say confidently at this early stage of analysis. It's very nicely written, I will say that. It's got a fun tone that I'm very much enjoying. There's loads and loads of skills. I hadn't realised just how many skills there are to go at. There's a huge glossary in the back. That's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out later in the book. My feeling is that the combat system is really good, but that it isn't good enough to stop it starting to feel like a bit of a chore early on. But my opinion might well change once I've played it through off mic. Obviously that will take me some time. It is 800 paragraphs long. It is a huge accomplishment on any level. Hopefully I'll have some interesting insights to offer during my closing remarks which i will be giving to you in just a few moments tatty bye firstly i need to acknowledge that i made a small error in my playthrough i had assumed that death would be the end of the adventure but in fact each time you die you just get dumped back to the main map and are free to continue your adventure that's both a really neat idea and maybe a slight cop-out. It's a neat idea because this book is long. Being knocked back to the beginning when you get to the latter stages would be a real kick in the teeth. It's a slight cop-out because it does make the game much easier to balance if you aren't having to worry as much about character death. And it lowers the stakes of each encounter a bit. You don't get the same sense of danger you would when you think your life was on the line. On balance, I think it's probably a good idea not to make a giant tome like this a punishing affair. It would just end up feeling like an absolute slog. I think it would be nice to have some kind of scoring system that tracks how many times you die. That would have encouraged people to play with degree of caution. 
as soon as I know I'm not in actual danger, I tend to throw caution completely to the wind. It's why I don't get on well with most horror video games. Being hunted in something like Alien Isolation is scary right up until the point I realise that death has no real consequences because I can just try again. One reason why I really like horror roguelike games is that at the very least that run is going to come to an end when you die and that to me creates a much better sense of tension than just hitting quick load. With that error out of the way let's look at how the Legion of Shadows stacks up in general before diving into some nuts and bolts. Structurally this is an interesting piece. There's three acts which escalate very nicely from messing around in a rural village through to more dangerous wilderness before finally hitting the big climax. It's very nicely laid out in that way and there's three full colour maps which give you a very strong sense of each act having a much greater sense of menace and consequence. There's a big video game influence on the design. I've been playing a nice action RPG recently called Grim Dawn and those kinds of role-playing games often involve travelling between hubs and then going out into the world to do discrete quests in a kind of act-based system. On the one hand, the freedom to do quests in whatever order you like feels very freeing, but it's a little deceptive here. As we saw in my recorded playthrough, you'll very much need to do the easy ones before embarking on the hard ones. However, even being able to choose between two or three quests creates quite a nice amount of choice in how you approach the game, and the author has done a decent job of building a subtle narrative into them that builds as you go through the quests. Especially in the first act I really enjoyed the way early quests could provide context and backstory for the area. Another thing that points to a video game influence is the focus on combat and obtaining loot. Sweet sweet loot. Again playing an action RPG really brought this into perspective. It's all about killing monsters, nicking their stuff and then trying to work out what kind of stuff works best with the character you're building. At the end of the first act you get to choose a class, each utilising a different core attribute. I chose Fighter because I just like hitting things with other things, but I suspect Rogue might actually be the best one because speed is such a core element of the system and I don't generally go near magic users. It's not a spectacularly complex system but the author has judged it really well. You get the flavour of a different class and it makes finding a bit of loot that works well with the build you're following feel very pleasing indeed. I tried to provide a similar feeling of escalation and opportunity in my last game book but I will put my hand on my heart and say it's much better implemented here probably because he's made it such a central plank of the design. The combat system is a work of art on one level. I talk a lot about combat tricks which make fights more interesting in fighting fantasy. If you want to see just how far you can push that kind of system, then Destiny Quest is an object lesson in just how powerful it can be. Adding rolling for damage and reducing that damage by armour, that's a pretty obvious next step for the system, and it's hard to see how you could implement it any better than it is here. Being able to use either magic or brawn to do damage is great, and this simple framework provides a vast amount of depth. There are literally dozens of different skills and special rules which add so many different possibilities for how combat can play out. This is both a blessing and a curse. As you get more gear, you'll accrue a whole bunch of special rules which can be deployed in combat. 
if you've got a full set of armor and weapons, you can end up with about 10 different combat tricks to deploy. And every time you pick up a new piece of equipment, you might lose one rule and gain a different one. This makes combat intricate, but also time consuming. Each time you make an attack roll or a damage roll, you need to check whether the monster special rules apply and then work out if any of your skills will give you an ability that will help you win the combat round or maybe deal additional damage or mitigate some of the damage coming in. This is a combat heavy book so you'll be doing this kind of thing a lot. I think when I was about 12 I'd have been all over this. I just loved rolling dice at that point in my life. But as someone who's over 40 and thus very tired all of the time, it did feel a little overwhelming. It's hard to call it a design failure because it's clear that the author was aiming for something and hit it bang on the nose. For me personally, I think I like messing with the combat rules more when they create narrative. So rules for a dragon breathing fire are great because that's a core part of your average dragon myth. Add some rules for a magic shield that can reflect dragon fire back and you've got an extremely memorable encounter because the additional rules are serving the story. However, if you've been using the same magic shield on a bunch of orcs earlier in the dungeon, that climactic encounter with the dragon won't feel so special because you're very used to the shield. So from a pure design perspective, Destiny Quest is an amazing example of what you can do, but that comes at the cost of narrative focus and narrative depth. The game is well balanced, almost to a fault. There's a very smooth progression from easier to harder quests. There are some odd speed bumps here and there, but I can't say I ever felt particularly surprised by anything in the book. There's something of a rhythmic quality to play, as many quests start with an introduction during which you can ask a few questions. Then you move on to the opening fight of the quest. Then you get some choices as to how you want to proceed. And then you finish off with a bigger fight and some sweet, sweet loot. There's plenty of really good work going on between those building blocks, but I never felt like I was about to have the rug pulled out from under me. And I never felt as though I didn't have a vague sense of what was coming. We've talked at length about the arbitrary nature of gamebook design, and this is a really good example of something that leans maybe too far towards fairness rather than leaning too far towards randomness. Sometimes it's a good thing if you take a wrong turn and come up against an angry dragon early in the adventure. Part of what I love about gamebooks is that feeling you get when you come to a fountain low on health and you know that it will either poison you or heal you, and then you take a drink and it does something completely unexpected. Perhaps it turns you into a toad for a while and you go off on a little mini toad adventure. Perhaps it summons an NPC to set you a weird challenge. That's one of those things that game books are able to do so much better than video games. And you have this ability to go places and do things that can step outside the simple systems that are possible in this kind of environment. And I think if you try and focus so much on an admittedly brilliant system you are kind of losing out on one of the best things about this as a unique format, that ability to take the reader to really surprising places. Again, this is purely a personal preference thing. I'm old, I'm jaded, I like to be surprised, even if that surprise is a little mean and unfair. 
One area that I do want to highlight as a positive is that the decision making feels very consequential. There's an issue in the early sections about a local witch who may or may not be responsible for various ills afflicting the village of Tidebury. You get lots of conflicting suggestions and bits of information and then when you confront the witch she gives you her side of the story and after that it's up to you what you do and I genuinely wasn't sure what I should do. There's a lot of little touches like that that feel very similar. The characters are very broadly drawn but you get to feel as though you are in control of how you respond to them. If you do get betrayed you'll feel as though you had a chance to make the alternative choice. And in terms of the writing, the NPCs are a real highlight for me. The writing is solid in terms of the description, but the book comes alive when you're interacting with people. There's some really fun, again, broadly drawn, bordering on cliched characters, but I'll take that over bland any day. There's also some really cool little descriptions of some of the more weird and wonderful combat encounters. I've got a place in my heart for any book which contains the phrase you must fight the turnips as a single enemy. The only element of the book which I genuinely did not like was the puzzles. There's a few genuinely infuriating logic puzzles which have been left in the world by a lost civilization and they made me so cross. It's such a good thing we didn't get to that point in my recorded playthrough because I like to try and keep things upbeat and positive while I'm playing to the best of my abilities and I'd have just thrown a massive sulk. Partly it's because it's just not how my brain works but it's also something that I feel sticks out in a fantasy story especially one that has for the most part done a decent job of riffing on folklore. On one level it's churlish to talk about realism in a book that features a fight with animated turnips, but there's something very jarring to me about being made to do number puzzles in a pseudo-medieval setting. It always feels as though I'm Gandalf being asked to solve a quadratic equation in order to open the gates of Moria. Riddles are one thing, but these are weird number puzzles that feel like they came out of a Sunday newspaper. And they're very hard as well. There's one that I completely failed to get without looking up a solution. And even my husband, who has multiple science and maths degrees, couldn't get it. It's really obtuse. I hate these kind of puzzles and my heart sinks whenever I see one. I think if you're good at logic puzzles, it's very hard to imagine how much other people might struggle with them. And that tends to influence how you designed them a long time ago. I was talking to a mathematician and he told me that physics was by far and away the easiest of the sciences because physics is just maths and maths is easy. And I was like, I really struggle with maths. And he couldn't really grasp that intuitively as a concept. And this feels like someone who's really good at logic puzzles, not really grasping that other people, even theoretically quite clever other people, might not be able to do the same. I don't think I'm especially dense, but there wasn't a single one that I could really do. And I just hate them. I, I really hate them. I like Sudoku, but it's not what I come to a game book for. I want to go on an adventure and have strange things happen and feel like either a hero or a loser, depending on how the narrative turns out, not on my ability to 
spot incredibly obtuse patterns of numbers. But that's really the only substantive criticism I've got. Everything else is just design decisions that I understand and can endorse to a greater or lesser extent. This is a book that is an undeniable achievement. 800 sections long is a vast tome. There's only a few other game books out there that even come close. I think the last Steve Jackson's sorcery book is 800 paragraphs, but I can't think of another one. The lack of internal illustrations is a bit of a shame, but it's not a deal breaker. Art would have seriously increased the cost of an already risky publishing venture, I think. Overall, this is a fascinating experiment, which marks Michael J. Ward as a creator with genuinely great design skills and a singular vision for what you can accomplish in this format. I'll almost certainly be covering some of the later books in the series at some point because I think there are really exciting things possible with this series if he can pull all of his best ideas together. The Legion of Shadow is easily available from online retailers and I gather he's just successfully kickstarted another entry in the franchise. So this is a game book series that's still going strong even today and that's something to be celebrated. I think that's all I've got to say about the Legion of Shadows. I'll be back very soon with another regular episode of Fantastic Fights where we'll be playing Daggers of Darkness, which sees the return of my old nemesis Luke Sharp. So we'll likely be going from someone with an excellent grasp of how systems work to someone who doesn't really understand how basic probability works. I do hope you will join me for that. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.